0: Well, one of the interesting things about the coming of Jesus, as we focus our hearts and our minds back on what happened in those days in Bethlehem, is to go back and look at the prophecies or the foretelling of this Messiah in the Old Testament. And I've read a lot of passages as we've lit the Advent candles this month. From the Old Testament foretelling of what was to take place. Well, today we have the big advantage of being able to look back to see how exact those prophecies uh, turned out. But when we now try to think about future events, as we try to sometimes let our ma- minds wander a little bit to the second coming of Jesus, things start to get a little bit blurry for us. We have some ideas, but it's not uh, crystal clear to us exactly how things are going to come about. We, we just know it's going to happen. We're just not sure about the exact details. Well, you kind of have to think of the prophecies of Jesus' first coming the same way. You have to, we have to sometimes try to put ourselves in the shoes of those uh, faithful people who first heard them. Every Jew knew it was going to happen. They just didn't know the details. Sadly, there are some among the Jews who still think it's coming. They, they missed it the first time. They didn't believe it. And that's a great tragedy, and it's why we need to keep on praying for uh, God's initial chosen people, the people of Israel. But even though they weren't too clear on the details of the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Savior that was to come, they did have some expectations. Some of those expectations were spot on, and some of them missed the mark. One of the expectations that did miss the mark, not totally, but a little bit, was that this Messiah would be a ruler, that he would be a king, that he would be the great deliverer or the rescuer of the Jewish people. Where they missed was not that he would be a great deliverer or a rescuer of the Jewish people. He was definitely that. But where they failed is that he would be someone who would come and take the Romans by force. That he would come in a display of of physical and uh, political strength and power. And that misinformed expectation is part of the reason that they still even now, don't acknowledge Jesus as their Messiah. Jesus didn't meet their grandiose expectations of a revolutionary Savior of sorts. So then, how did the Messiah arrive? Well, we who are now familiar with the Christmas story know that he came without fanfare. He came to a A very young and common young woman. A girl who was engaged to a working class young man. He was born in a nothing town where he was placed in, of all things, a manger. Definitely not a typical royal birth. No royal doctor. No royal guards. No royal attendants. And as he grew up, we hardly know anything about him. He was definitely not like the royal family today, where every one of their moves is publicized and scrutinized. What we know about Jesus is just a few details about his birth. A a one-time reference when he was uh, 12 years old that took took place uh, around the days of the Passover feast there in the temple. And then... The Bible sort of fast-forwards to the last three years of his public ministry from the ages of 30 to 33. Only three years. but what a three years it was. But even his public ministry during those three years was marked by humility and by uh, unruler-like behavior. This was all part of God's grand purpose for the Savior, for the Son who would become the rescuer and deliverer. You see, this Savior, this King, this deliverer was also a servant. He was a humble servant, a suffering servant. And he didn't just become a servant. This was God's purpose from before time. Just listen to some of the prophecies from from Isaiah. There are prophecies all through the Old Testament, but here's just a few from Isaiah. Isaiah 42 verse 1, God says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in in whom my soul delights. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. He's the servant of God. Or chapter 50, verse 10. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who who walks in darkness and has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. And in chapter 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. And that, of course, leads right into chapter 53, where it talks about uh, the suffering servant in great detail. The one who was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. All through these sections that foretell the coming of the Messiah, he's pictured there as God's servant. Who is coming to accomplish God's grand purpose of salvation for his people. And even when Jesus does finally arrive on the scene, so these prophecies were some 700 years before he came, before Christmas, but even when he does arrive on the scene, listen for how he describes himself. Jesus knew his purpose full well. Mark 10, verse 45. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And even later, as the apostles preach about Jesus, even after he's been raised and ascended and exalted, they still see him as the servant, the one who was marked with humility. Turn back to Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. And we read this already, but just pay attention now to this part where he is the servant. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. Though he was in the form of God. He's talking here about Christ Jesus, the end of verse 5. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. That's all servant talk. By becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly now exalted him. So Jesus came as a servant. And our Christmas reflections should make sure to always emphasize that aspect of his coming. That Jesus came to accomplish the plan of his Father. He obeyed that plan perfectly. And the fact that Jesus, therefore, comes to serve. And that fact that he came to serve, should also then inform our disposition, our attitude as those who claim to be followers of Jesus. If you just take the last couple of verses I read about Jesus, the point of those verses is that Jesus is our model, our example of one who serves. And so if you're still in Philippians 2, that whole section starts with, if there's any encouragement in Christ, complete my joy by having the same mind, As Jesus, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, and then it goes on to describe him as the one who came as a servant. Because he came as a servant, that should inform who we are, how we treat others, we serve. Or in the passage in Mark 10, Jesus is talking about his deci- talking to his disciples there. And that passage starts off with this. You know that those who are considered rulers lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And then, for even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve. Because Jesus was a servant, we as his followers have been equipped to be servants too. This is our calling. This has to be our disposition as God's people. This has to be our attitude. This is what it means to truly follow Jesus. Well, that's a long introduction to get us to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. And there is a lot we could highlight about these verses, but I want to just make the connection from these verses to Christmas. The fact that Jesus came as a servant and that we are now his servants as well. So let's read together 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and just the first five verses. 1 Corinthians 4. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It's the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. The first line of that chapter says, "This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ." And as stewards of the mysteries of God. How should we as Christians be regarded? Answer, as servants of Christ. As stewards of the mysteries of God. Now now this is talking specifically here about Christian leaders. But it's also a general word for all of us. Both of those concepts, servants and stewards, show up again in 1 Peter 4 verse 10 in reference to all Christians. It says there, as each one has received a gift... As every believer has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Serve, steward. So, as those who have been saved by the one who came to serve, we too must be those who serve. We've been given a trust. We are Christians, and so we must be like Christ. As Christ came to serve the purposes of his Father, so we must come to serve the purposes of our Savior and our Lord. We are fundamentally servants of Christ. We, we have to make this transition to rejoicing at the child, to becoming servants of the King. Jesus is a baby, but Jesus is also our Lord. He is Lord to such a point that one day, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven. Every knee. Not just believers. Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We are servants of our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. And so we should be regarded as servants of Christ. All of our actions and all of our words... uh, All of our attitudes should demonstrate that reality. We can't just acknowledge him at Christmas. Our lives should demonstrate the fact that we are serving God, that we're serving Christ all the time. And it has to be an exclusive service to Christ and to God. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, no one can serve two masters. For either he's going to hate the one and love the other. Can't serve both he will be devoted to one and despise the other and just for one example he says you cannot serve god and money jesus wants and i would say jesus deserves our exclusive devotion our exclusive service like I said, in this context here, Paul is talking specifically to Christian leaders. So while there's a general application here, there's a specific application for those in leadership. Leaders in the church, first and foremost, is who he's talking to here. But we can also extend the application to those who are leaders in any sphere, leaders in the home, fathers, uh, parents, those who are leaders in the workplace. If you're a Christian leader in the workplace, this applies to you. And just a little bit of background here again, and so we get the context into which Paul is writing this. The perceived uh, founders of the church there in Corinth were given an exalted position. To such a, a degree to, and to a point that it became a competition of, of who was following who. The people that introduced them to Christ and got them started on their journey of faith and, and maybe even baptized them, Peter or Apollos or Paul are the ones that are named here. They were long gone by this point, but the people were still venerating those leaders. And actually saying that being baptized by one was better than being baptized by the other. It all seems like sort of, to us, immature, juvenile squabbling. But it was causing division in the church. And so Paul's reacting against that for pretty much all of these first four chapters. And so, in chapter four, verse one, and and he probably could have inserted this line before verse one. He, he's saying, instead of regarding us as leaders here, here's how one ought to regard us as servants of Christ. Paul didn't want anything to do with anyone following him. He didn't want anything to do with being thought of as a as a celebrity preacher. That's the last thing he wanted. He wanted to direct people to Christ and to the gospel and to the cross. He saw himself and Apollos and Peter as just servants of Christ. The word servant there was used in the shipping industry of that day. Huperitus is the Greek word for one of the guys that just rowed the boat. He was just one of the crew who helped move the ship. And he wasn't even one of the strongest rowers. In ancient ships of those days, uh, this word for servant here was down in the third level of rowers. It's just sort of a a third tier galley rower. If you want to think of it in an Olympic rowing of this day and age where you have an eight person crew, he would have been just one of the guys in the middle. Necessary, but not very noticeable. A servant, an under rower. He was a helper, an attendant. That's how Paul is saying leaders ought to be regarded. They they take orders and then they carry them out. Who do they take orders from? From Christ. We are servants of Christ. We're also, it says, stewards of the mysteries of God. Servants and stewards. This is our identity as Christian leaders. A, A steward in the language of Paul's day was the person that ran the estate. The owner would put the steward in in charge of running the day-to-day operation so that he could focus on on other things, on, on his main source of income probably, without having to worry about all the other stuff of his house, of his estate. The master would tell him how he wanted things to be done and, and what he wanted everything to look like, but the, s- the steward is the one that would make it happen. He would allocate the resources, he'd be in charge of the staff, he'd be in charge of the finances, he'd be in charge of the food service, he'd be in charge of the, just the property in general. I have an uncle who actually had that, a position just like that. Now, some of you might remember the game Trivial Pursuit. Well, the makers of that game were from the same area where my uncle lived. And after that game just amazingly became really popular the investors, four of them, got rich in a hurry and somehow, it must have been through some of his past connections, my uncle got hired by one of them to run his estate, which was situated beautifully right on Lake Ontario. And he did that same sort of thing that we're talking about here. He would meet periodically for the owner, Mr. Werner for some instructions and, and then he'd make sure they got carried out And it had mostly to do with making sure that the property was kept up. But he had to have a sense of ownership, and he needed to be trustworthy. To be a steward was actually a very dignified position. And so we have a couple of different things going on here. We have a servant, which describes the the lowly nature of the leader. And we have a steward, which describes uh, almost a more dignified nature of a leader. And a Christian leader is both of those things. He, sh- he or she should have a humble demeanor while also realizing that he or she has been given a-, a trusted position. And so Paul uses that picture to describe the Christian leader. It's literally the house manager. And it tells us here what he's supposed to manage. The mysteries of God. He's a, he's a servant of Christ and a steward of the mysteries of God. What are these mysteries talking about? Well, these mysteries are really not mysteries anymore. They were at one time, but they're not anymore. They've been revealed now. It's talking about the gospel. It was a mystery of, at one time to, to Old Testament believers, but now has been revealed in the person of Jesus, in the person of the suffering servant. It was the revelation and coming of of a savior. That's what Paul has been holding up right through these first three chapters. It's the gospel in all its fullness and in all its richness. As pastors, as elders, as church ministry leaders, as Christian fathers, as Christian mothers, as Christian employers, we are stewards of the gospel. I suppose in a wider sense, we're stewards of all of God's revealed word. Paul tells the elders in Ephesus to declare the whole counsel of God. This is the task that God has given us. We are not to ignore scripture. We're not to pass over certain parts of the Bible to meet our or to make it our our own about our own needs or desires. We're not to twist it in order to suit it to ourselves. We're to declare the pure unadulterated word of God, the word of truth. If we, as God's stewards, want to carry out the Master's orders, we need to promote the Gospel at all times, to proclaim the Gospel at all times, to commend the Gospel at all times through our behavior and our actions, to hold up God's Word at all times. The Bible commentator Leon Morris writes that the sphere of the preacher's responsibility is God's revelation. And he means that we have to always operate within that sphere. We can't go outside of that. As a pastor, this is my calling from God to dispense the gospel, to dispense God's words to you, the church, to disperse God's word to you. Those are, those are my marching orders. And so my specific role as a manager, in a sense, of God's house at Wetaskiwood Mission Church is, is not to give you my opinion on things. My role as a manager of God's house here at Wetaskiwood Mission Church is to explain God's opinion, to give the sense of God's opinion as given in his word. That's the role of Christian leaders. It's to be God's house manager, responsible for getting out God's gospel, and to do it as a lowly servant of Christ, not seeking glory for themselves, but trying to uphold the reputation of the Lord, and glorifying him, and making him look good. That's who we are. That has to be our identity as followers of Jesus. When the house manager would make the estate look look nice, it wasn't the steward that got the glory for that. When guests would be invited over, they'd go to the estate owner and go, my, this looks wonderful, it's beautiful. Do we make the gospel of God look wonderful to our families, to our church, to our workers, our employees? And then the only requirement there, verse 2, the only requirement of stewards is that they be found faithful. That makes sense, doesn't it? When the estate owner gives the estate manager a task and the, and the estate owner goes away to do his own thing, he'll go away to, to worry about his own affairs, to his, his main source of income, whatever that might be, but he trusts the manager to carry out the task that he's been given and to keep the estate running according to his expectations. If he's faithful, he'll keep his job. And he'll likely be trusted with more things and earn a pretty good bonus. But he's required to be reliable. He's required to be completely trustworthy. In the case of Christian leaders, they've been entrusted with the gospel. And so the question we all need to ask ourselves is, have I been found faithful? Am I a reliable steward of the mysteries of God? Am I faithful to God with the task that he's left me with? Will God find me trustworthy? That's our one requirement. We might have other gifts and abilities that that God is going to use, whether it's creativity or whether it's a certain way with words or um, a certain skill we have with our hands or a charismatic personality or, or it might even be a tender heart. But our only requirement is to be faithful to God's word. I've told you before that one of my motivations, and I suppose in a sense I'm motivated by fear. Um, but one of my main, main motivations in ministry is 2 Timothy 2:15 where Paul tells Timothy, "Do your best to present yourself to God as one, as one approved as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed. What could a worker of God potentially be ashamed about? as one who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth? The charge that I have been given by God is His Word. And I need to take great care that I handle it correctly. When I do that, I will be found faithful. And so I continually ask you, and I ask my elders to hold me accountable there. I want to be a servant of Christ by serving you a healthy and a steady diet of God's Word. If there's ever a point where you don't feel like I've handled the passage rightly, or I might even be going beyond God's Word, please call me on that and talk to me about it. Always welcome a good discussion around the scriptures. Maybe even in a debate in some instances. But if you are in any sphere of Christian leadership, make sure you are faithful to the property that God has given you charge over. The mysteries of God. The good news of God which is in the word of God. It's required of stewards that they be found Faithful. Well, in verses 3 to 5, Paul really just kind of outlines what this means in terms of people's opinion of him. In a word, it really doesn't matter to him what people think. It only matters what God thinks. Look at verse 3. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It's the Lord who judges me. Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things that now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. See, the Corinthian Church operated in a culture in which her human opinions were valued. It mattered what people it mattered to these leaders, or to the church, what people thought of them. And that attitude had slipped into the church by the time Paul was writing this letter. It mattered how they appeared. It mattered with whom they were associated. The judgments of other people actually informed what they did and how they looked. If that church would have operated in our culture, they would have gone to the unchurched neighbors and taken a survey. And then the results of that survey by the unchurched would have determined their actions. Well, it's into that same kind of setting that Paul comes with these words. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged. And really the word here just means evaluated or assessed by you. It's a very small thing that I should be assessed by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. It really didn't matter to Paul what people thought of him, especially non-Christians, but even those in the church. And it didn't even matter how he evaluated himself. Even his own self-assessment had no ultimate value or authority. He says there in verse 4 that when it comes to his ministry, he's not aware that he's doing anything contrary to his God-appointed task, but even he could be wrong about that. Even his own self-evaluation is not what ultimately makes him innocent. He's not the final arbiter on those things. As long as he was faithful to his calling as a preacher uh, of the gospel, the opinions of others mattered little to him. And they should matter little to us too. We will be evaluated by our trustworthiness to the stewardship that we have been given from God. So right at the end of verse 4, he says, It is God who judges me. It's God who judges me. It's God who's my final arbiter. It is God who will decide how humble of a servant I was. And it's God who will decide how faithful of a steward I was. Why? Verse 5, God knows our motivations. And when Jesus comes again, he's going to bring to light things hidden in darkness. Some people think that might be talking about things that are evil, but I think in this context here, it's just meaning things that are, that haven't been revealed yet. Things that haven't been brought to light. He'll bring those things to light and will disclose the purposes of the heart. One day, the hidden motivations of our hearts will be exposed. And that's, and only then, is when a true and complete evaluation can happen. And that evaluation will come from God. So Paul's command in verse 5 is don't pronounce judgment before that time. Just remember that Paul's talking about leadership here. As pastors, church leaders, as Christian husbands, as fathers and mothers, we, we should seek to be evaluated. We should seek to be tested, especially when it comes to our teaching and our doctrine. We need to make sure that what we teach squares with God's word. So leaders aren't above evaluation. That's not what this is saying here. We're not above wise counsel or even correction from other Christians. Leaders are not above correction, especially when they sin. They need to be held to account. But the only one that can ultimately assess our faithfulness to our stewardship and the only one that can ultimately judge the motivations of our servanthood is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul is telling the church here not to impute motives on their leaders. Don't judge their hearts. You can't make a 100% accurate assessment in that area. But God can. And God will. And when they're found to be faithful there, He will give them their commendation. They will receive praise from God. But the word to us here, and the challenge I just want to leave with you today, is to think about the trust that you have been given at the cusp of Christmas, where you celebrate he who came as a suffering servant. It is important here to do a self evaluation now, especially in this area. I guess we could ask one simple but hugely important quest, uh, question to start. And that would be Is Jesus your Lord? Is he your master? And are you his servant? If you're here today and would not consider yourself to be a Christian you can uh, bow your knee to Jesus and to confess him as Lord you can do that by humbly confessing to God the father that you are a sinner that you have broken God's laws uh, the laws that were given to you by your creator and that you are therefore required to keep you have broken those laws and then with sorrow for your sin you can ask God to help you to turn away from those sins You can ask God for help to turn away from those sins. Where do you find help? Well, there's only one place to go and that place is a person, the person of Jesus. And you need to trust in Him because after He came to this earth, uh, right through to when He died on the cross, He never once sinned. He was the only human never to do that. And that's because Jesus is also God. And so you have to rely totally on on not your ability to keep the law, because you can't. You have to rely totally on his life and death in order to be saved. And then, Jesus is not only your Savior, but he will be your Lord and your Master. And you must, I should say, you get to humbly serve him. And if you are a a Christian, most of us here today, Same question goes to you. Is Jesus your Lord and Master? Are you his servant? Are you living up to your profession of faith? Or have you drifted into uh, maybe becoming your own Lord, where you are your own authority? Have you been a faithful servant of Jesus, or are you serving yourself? Have you been faithful to what Jesus calls uh, on you to do as his follower? Or are you maybe trying to refit God's word to match your own needs and your own desires? And finally, a word for Christian leaders Christian leaders in every sphere. How are you doing as a steward of the mysteries of God? Have you been faithful to your stewardship of the gospel and to God's word itself? Have you taken good care of that trust? Are you applying the gospel to your teaching? Are you applying the gospel to your life? Can others see that the gospel is central to you in the way you live, in the way you talk, in the way you dress, in your attitudes? Are you carrying out the commands of your master? Are you obedient to him? Are you a servant of the one whom we celebrate this Christmas, the one who came to serve. I encourage you to do whatever you can to make sure that you are found faithful so that when your final evaluation is rendered, that you will receive commendation from God. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Let's bow in prayer. Holy Spirit, we thank you for again pointing us in the direction of your Son this morning. We know that that is one of your tasks, to help us to see the Son, to remind us of what the Son did and what the Son said and who the Son is. And then we thank you, our Father, that you sent your Son to this earth as a servant. As one who carried out your plan, even as we read this morning, even to the point of death on a cross. And as one who faithfully obeyed every single one of your laws. And we pray, our Father, that you would help us too to put our total trust in him. And to behold him in all his glory and in all his splendor during this season of the year. And that you would help us, our Father, to be faithful in our task as servants of Christ and as stewards of the mysteries of God. For we pray these things in the name of our suffering servant, the Savior, the one who will come as King, Jesus Christ. Amen.